Democratic base is very dialed into abortion rights as an issue more broadly. Uh, Same-sex marriage, right. Closed the state's last abortion provider. has now apologized to his congregation. the Bible has application for every would violate her views as a Southern Baptist. He's on In the midst of all of today's noise and confusion, we need a voice that cuts through the chaos to bring wisdom and clarity. Welcome to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's, an hour-long show exploring critical issues related to faith and culture from a uniquely Christian perspective. Now, here's your host, Julie Roy's. Is the Bible full of contradictions? How can God be love and yet send 4 billion people to hell because they don't believe? Welcome to The Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're going to be tackling tough questions like these with leading Christian apologist Dr. Michael Brown. You may remember that about a month ago, Marty Sampson, a popular songwriter and worship leader with Hillsong, said that he was losing his faith, and the reason that he gave is that he couldn't get answers to difficult questions about his faith. On Instagram, Sampson posted, and I quote, How many preachers fall? Many. No one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many. No one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradiction? No one talks about it. How can God be love and yet send 4 billion people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Well, in response, Dr. Brown wrote a gracious open letter to Samson. In it, though, he challenged Samson's claim that no one talks about these things. What is surprising, Dr. Brown wrote, is that Marty seems to feel that no one is talking about challenges to the Christian faith. No one is discussing difficult intellectual issues. No one is engaging the apparent contradictions or interpretive problems in the Bible. I can only ask with sadness rather than condemnation, Marty, what Christian world have you been living in? Well, Dr. Brown goes on to note that many people have been talking about these things and numerous books have been written to address these issues. What's more, Dr. Brown has been participating in scholarly debates on difficult questions for more than 47 years. But I think Dr. Brown uh, hit the nail on the head when he wrote that what I fear is Marty's shocking lack of awareness of a massive array of solid apologetics material is not his alone. There are probably plenty of other believers who find no outlet for their own questions and concerns leading to apostasy or deep secret doubt rather than an intellectually sound and vibrant faith. When I read that, my heart just broke because I do believe Dr. Brown is right. There are good answers to these questions about faith. I've asked these questions. I've sought these answers. And what I found is that there's really good answers, but few people actually discover them. So I contacted Dr. Brown, who's a friend and a repeat guest on my former radio show. I asked him if he'd be willing to appear on the Roy's Report and answer some of these really tough questions. And he agreed because... Dr. Brown loves doing this sort of thing. Honestly, I can't think of anyone better than Dr. Brown to respond to these questions. For those of you who aren't familiar uh, with Dr. Michael Brown, he's a Jewish believer in Jesus and the founder and president of Fire School of Ministry. He's also a prolific author and host of the radio show Line of Fire and the TV show Answering Your Toughest Questions. Dr. Brown also holds a PhD in Near Eastern Languages and Literatures from New York University, and he has served as a visiting or adjunct professor at numerous seminaries, including Southern Evangelical Seminary, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So, Dr. Brown, welcome. I am so glad that you're able to join us. Oh, thrilled to be back on the air with you, Julie. Well, you know, I should mention that the questions that we have today, Dr. Brown, are ones that I've actually gotten 
on social media by just querying uh, listeners and followers on their questions. And those of you who don't follow us on Facebook, that's easy to do. You just go to facebook.com slash reach Julie Roys, and Roys is spelled R-O-Y-S. Uh, likewise, on Twitter, our handle is at reach Julie Roys. Um, so we're going to be getting to, I, I have a few a long list of questions. I don't know if we'll get to all of them. But before we go to those, I would love for you to answer the question that Marty Sampson asks uh, because I think these questions are probably, if you did like a top 10 of, of questions that are out there or challenges to the Christian faith, these would be at the top. So let me just start with that first one about how can a loving God send people to hell who don't believe in him? Right. Well, as, as Marty phrased it, it was basically simply for not believing, as, as if there's no guilt in our lives, as though there are no choices that we make. So... The question I would ask everyone is, are you glad that you're here, or would you rather have never existed? Well, since the vast majority of people don't kill themselves, that means that we're, we're still glad we've had the opportunity to live. Then the second question is, would you like it if God made you in a certain way so that you were basically a robot, programmed to operate a certain way, no freedom of choice, from here the rest of your life, you can make no choices, but you won't suffer? Everyone would say, no, I, let me have my freedom. I mean, that's what we want more than anything, the, the right to determine my own life. So if we do that, then we're going to have choices, and they're going to be right decisions, they're going to be wrong decisions. They're going to be things that we do that have negative consequences and things with positive consequences. And there is a punishment for sin, and it is death and judgment. Many things don't get fixed in this world. They get dealt with in the world to come. But ultimately... God has said, listen, the whole world is guilty. Everybody's guilty. Everybody deserves condemnation and judgment. But rather than putting it on you, I'm going to put it on my son who doesn't deserve it. And if you will cry out to him, you'll find mercy and you'll have eternal life. So God is going out of his way to say to humanity, you don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to reap what you sowed. If we refuse his mercy... We're basically choosing our own destruction. We're choosing our own judgment. Now, there are many other questions. What about those who never heard the message? What about those raised in different religions? All I can say is the God that bent over backwards by sending his son to die for what we did is a God who's moved by compassion and kindness and love and mercy and is not vindictive and mean-spirited. So I don't understand how everything works or why, but I know that God is not at fault, he's not to blame, and that he has reached out to us with extraordinary love. So when I look at him, look at him through the lens of the cross, because that's the nature of God. He's not vindictive, mean-spirited, tyrant. He's not the way Richard Dawkins described him, you know, some misogynistic, petulant, megalomaniacal God. That's not who he is. He's a God who loved us enough to send his son. So if I reject his mercy, then... I'm the one basically damning myself, condemning myself. And, and the other question is, do we not want there to be judgment in the world to come? If there's sin, if there's injustice, if things have been wrong in this world, do we not want there to be a world to come that fixes the rights and wrongs and sets things the way they should be? So again, I mean, we go on for hours because it's a massively difficult question. But the short answer is the way Marty phrased it misses the whole point. Mm. Well, and it reminded me of something I think it was the late R.C. Sproul said once when somebody asked him, you know, what about the innocent person in Africa who's never heard? 
And his reply is, I don't think there's an innocent person who exists in Africa or anywhere else on the world. And that's what you're getting at. We do kind of look at it like we're innocent, not in need of a savior, because we, we sort of minimize our sin, don't we? Oh, yeah. We, we don't recognize the nature of sin, the depth of sin. And if someone says, yeah, but how does that work out with an eternal hell and people boiling forever? I would say rather than come up with a certain image of hell, perhaps based on tradition, understand that the the most hellish thing about hell is the forfeiting of eternal life and separation from God. And that's something that basically people choose. If I don't want to be with him in this world, why would I want to be with him forever? And does not he, he have the right to banish those in the world to come who have banished him in this world. Mm. And we are judged according to what we know. So I I think it's kind of hard, isn't it? Because none of us know God when we don't know how he judges. And don't you think people will be judged maybe by a little different standard, depending on how much they know and how much they've been taught? Clearly, uh, the word addresses that in many different ways, and and sometimes quite overtly saying that those who know versus those who don't know will, will, will be judged more severely. I know when my dad passed away in 1977, at the age of 63, so hearing from a Jewish family, not a religious Jewish family, but Jewish enough that we didn't believe in Jesus, it was not an option, Mm. I come to faith as a heavy drug user, begin sharing the gospel with my dad, Uh, he starts attending church services, you know, just because he's proud of his son, he's going to hear me preach or whatever, and started to read the New Testament, and I remember him asking me one day, so when am I going to feel something? I mean, he was, he was that sincere and open, mm. and I thought, great, little by little, God's working his life, and then suddenly he's gone. And what happened before he died, what, did God open his heart by receiving me? Did he somehow receive the Lord? Is he lost? I mean, these are agonizing questions. It's about my father. Mm. And, and I wrestled with it and wrestled with it. And, and, and then one day it hit me. How merciful is God to me? How long-suffering is he to me? How patient is he to me? How much does he put up with my folly, even now that I'm a believer and seeking to follow him? That's the nature of my father, my heavenly father. He's not schizophrenic. So on that day of judgment, I know whatever he does will be right. I know whatever his verdict is for every human being, it will be right. It, won't, mm. it will be nothing unjust, unfair. Maybe from our vantage point here, Things can seem unjust and unfair, but let's look at the whole picture and revelation of God. Okay, that's Dr. Michael Brown. You're listening to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's. We will be right back, and when we come back, we'll tackle that question about, isn't the Bible all full of contradictions? Stay tuned. We'll be right back. We now return to The Roy's Report. Here's your host, Julie Roy's. Is the Bible full of contradictions? If God is all-powerful, then why do bad things happen to good people? Welcome back to The Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and if you wondered about conundrums like these, today's show is for you. That's because leading apologist Dr. Michael Brown is joining me to answer these difficult questions that most of you uh, have submitted to us, and so we're going to give him a chance to answer those. And if you'd like to join the live online conversation about this show, just go to facebook.com slash reachjulieroys, and Roys is spelled R-O-Y-S, or on Twitter, our handle is at reachjulieroys. Also, I want to mention that today I'm giving away five copies of Dr. Brown's newly released uh, revised edition of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. 
Uh, as I've mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, Dr. Brown is a Jewish believer in Christ. And this, I've read this first edition of his book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, and it's an outstanding book chronicling the history of Christians and the Jewish people. And it's a hard read because we have not, as Christians, acted the way that we should have acted towards Jewish people for a very long time. But this is one of those books that I just think is is a must-read for all Christians. So again, I'm giving away five of those copies. If you'd like to enter today's giveaway, just go to julieroys.com slash giveaway. Again, that's julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash giveaway. Um, so Dr. Brown, uh, before the break, I'd said I wanted to answer that second question that Marty Sampson, this Hillsong worship leader who said he's losing his faith, that he asked, which was about, isn't the Bible just full of contradictions? And, and how do you deal with that? So how do well, the, you? The first thing is, we're not afraid of the question. That's one of the biggest things, that we mm-hmm. want to create an environment where people are free to ask questions. It's one thing to be a mocker, a skeptic, and you're just trying to tear down, you have no interest in really learning. You're talking about a sincere seeker or a believer Many times they, they struggle, even fall away from faith, because they're not allowed to ask questions. So first thing we want to say, great question. I love it. I'm so glad you've been reading the Bible that carefully. Mm-hmm. So there are many apparent contradictions. Some of them go away just by digging a little bit deeper and getting a further understanding. Some of them go away when we realize that we have thousands of manuscript copies, which God has graciously preserved for us of the Bible. And, and sometimes it's a minor manuscript error. Uh, some of them go away when there's a new archaeological discovery or a new linguistic discovery. And then we realize, oh, okay, this, these things seem to be saying something different. They're not actually different. Some of them confirm the accuracy of accounts, like apologist J. Warner Wallace points out, famous as the cold case detective as a policeman, that when he started studying the Gospels and looking at the eyewitness accounts, he said, these ring true because they're not all saying everything the exact same way. So when you do investigations and interviews at the site, say, of of a car accident, and you talk to 10 different people who were there, one looking down from the the, the window of their apartment, another coming the other way in in the car, three people walking on the street, another in the car behind, another in one car that got hit, they all tell the story differently, but then there's an internal harmony when you put it all together. That's what often happens with apparent contradictions. And there are others that we just don't have answers for right now. Was there an ancient copyist error that became part of the text so the original text was accurate? There was a copyist error. Could it be that we just need more historical background? Those that that remain as apparent contradictions tend to be very, very minor. Sometimes difference in numbers, how many people were killed in a battle that King says it one way and Chronicles another. But in terms of the overall truths of the faith, None of them are threatened by by manuscript error. None of them are threatened by apparent contradictions. The overall message, overwhelmingly clear. And here's the other thing to to remember. Would would the editors that copied, say, the Gospels, would they have continued to copy accounts that they knew were completely contradictory? Would people who know each other put accounts out and the accounts are completely contradictory? Is that logical? And if this was sacred to the writers, wouldn't they think, oh, I've got to fix this because this seems to contradict itself. So often, a lot of it comes from a particular scientific mentality we may have of how stories are told or how things are related, and that's not the way it would have been in the ancient world. You know, I'll just throw out one little thing. I don't believe the Bible 
when it gives us the creation account, which you have in, in, in poetic form and in, in literary form of, of different kinds, that when you have it like Genesis 1 or then creation references in Job or other things, I don't believe the main goal is to teach science, but to teach us about who God is and how he orders the universe. I don't mean the Bible contradicts science, but that the main focus is not to teach us about science. But let's say that the goal of the Bible was to teach scientifically accurate truth, and therefore it said that the earth went around the sun. That would mean that everyone who lived up until around 1500 or so would have thought the Bible was in error because the science of the day taught mm. it one way. Mm. And then since then, how many scientific developments, oh, science is sure about this, and then 50 years later we reverse it. So that's the whole thing. The, the Bible is timeless and speaking in a way that's timeless, and therefore it uses observational language about the sun rising and the sun setting. Why is that wrong for the Bible to do it? But we do it today, even though we know that the sun doesn't rise and set. Mm. So we, we need to... to treat things fairly and rightly, but whole books have been written, multiple books, examining Bible contradictions, and the great majority of them go away when you dig a little deeper. Well, and I find when I had, had this question posed to me by friends who, you know, are skeptics, when they say the thing about contradictions, I usually come back to them and I say, you know what, there are some apparent contradictions in Scripture, and I've studied some of them, and I'm just wondering, which one bothers you the most? And by and large, they don't know a single apparent contradiction. They've just heard that the Bible has contradictions. But when you look into them, there are good explanations. And like you said, the ones that we're not quite sure about often can be resolved later. Give an example, though, of one that was seen as a contradiction and then we later found out was not, or that may just be a a matter of different perspectives. Yeah, so let's take, for example, in... uh in 2 Samuel 24, it says that the anger of the Lord incited David to number Israel. And then in 1 Chronicles 21, it says that Satan incited David to number Israel. And people think these are contradictions. No, Samuel is written hundreds of years before the exile. Chronicles is written after the exile. In terms of dating of books, books that mention Satan by name are Job, which even though it has an ancient history... And, and, and ancient pedigree is actually written much later. Uh, my commentary on Job comes out in a number of weeks, so I've lived in this for, for years. And, and then uh, Chronicles is written after the exile, and that's when, uh, along with Zechariah, which is, is at that same time, there's overt mention of Satan. So basically, it's two different perspectives. Uh, the one account telling us what happens behind the scenes God is angry with David, the next account telling us the means by which God allowed David to be incited, namely through Satan. So, you know, people have asked me that many a time. Mm. It's just understand the chronology, understand that before the exile, when there was so much idolatry in Israel, God could not give a clear revelation of Satan. Even, even the Genesis account with the snake, there's not a clear revelation of the devil. Right, So mm-hmm. if you gave that to Old Testament Israel, they all would have worshipped the devil, because he's pretty powerful. <laughs> if he's the one bringing all this bad stuff on him, we should follow him, because he can lift it off. So it was only after the exile, when idolatry was largely purged from the nation, that God could give a further revelation, and that take us behind the scenes. And now by the time we get to the New Testament, all of it has come out into the open. Hmm. 
Well, I want to go to the questions now that were submitted by folks, and we only have like a minute and a half left, so I'll probably just have to pose this question and we'll we'll wait till the next segment for you to answer it. But uh, Kim Zodi Rupert, she writes, is God really omnipotent and in charge of all things? If so, why, when bad things continually happen to good people and the most faithful, do we say that the devil is at work or it's their doing and not God? It's a little bit similar to what you just answered. We, we have about a minute if, if you want to start tackling right, that. So, so let me, again, big questions, but here's the short answer. God in his omnipotence has given us free will. God in his sovereignty has given us choices, just as he gave the angels choices. So when we see things happening that are contrary to the revelation of God in Scripture, but rather have the nature of Satan, who is a liar, a liar and a murderer by nature, and who is a destroyer and is a tempter and a deceiver, that's when we see the enemy at work. God does not deceive us. God does not tempt us. But these are things Satan does. Even in the book of Job, it's Satan who goes out and does these horrific things to Job, who was a righteous man. So we recognize the marks of Satan. And what are we told in Scripture? Resist him steadfast in the faith. Ephesians 6, put on the armor of God. James 4, resist the devil. 1 Peter 5, resist the devil. So we're at war. There is a battle. That's the way God and his sovereignty set it up. Well, that's apologist Dr. Michael Brown. I'm Julie Royce. You're listening to The Royce Report. We will be right back after a short break. Former U.S. Ambassador Caroline Kennedy is coming to the Chicago area this October for a special conversation at Judson University's 2019 World Leaders Forum. Learn how Kennedy, a diplomat, an author, and the eldest child of President John F. Kennedy, carries on her father's legacy of public service at this unique opportunity for the Chicagoland community. Get your tickets today for this lively conversation, hosted by nationally syndicated radio host and commentator, Eric Metaxas. The World Leaders Forum brings recognized world leaders to the region each year to inspire leadership for all who attend. Many great thinkers and leaders have keynoted this prominent event. You won't want to miss Caroline Kennedy this fall. Judson University's 2019 World Leaders Forum is October 8th, 7 p.m. at the Renaissance Schomburg Convention Center. Tickets start at $75 and are available now at judsonu.edu WLF. Once again, tickets available now at judsonu.edu WLF. Now, more of the Roy's Report. Once again, here's Julie Roy's. Welcome back to the Roy's Report, brought to you in part by Judson University. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're tackling skeptics' toughest questions about Christianity with leading apologist Dr. Michael Brown. So if you've wondered how Scripture could say that God wishes no one to perish, but at the same time says that all were cre- that some were actually created as objects of wrath— you're going to want to stick around. We're going to get to these tough questions. Also, if you're just joining us and you want to catch the complete show, you can do that. Uh, after the broadcast, we will be posting the entire audio as a podcast to my website, julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S dot com. Also today, I'm giving away five copies of Dr. Brown's newly revised edition of Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. This is a book retelling the tragic story of the church and the Jewish people and is a must read for every believer. So to enter that contest, just go to julieroy, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash giveaway. So Michael, uh, a listener, Michelle Lane, she wrote, many verses speak of election and that God chose certain people and created others for destruction. And Paul's answer to the question, how can it be your fault because 
who can resist his will is simply, who are you to question God? But in other parts, it says things like God isn't willing that any should perish, that he loves the whole world. So how can both these things be true? Right, so a Calvinistic answer would be that when Scripture says God loves the whole world, it means people from all over the world, and that Jesus did not die to save the whole world or to make salvation possible for the whole world, but rather to save the elect. And that when it says he's not willing that any should perish, it means that any of the elect should perish. So for Calvinist, that's how it, it fits. They would say First Timothy 2, that says we should pray for all men to be saved means all classes of men. Second Peter 3, which I just quoted, that willing any should perish means any of the elect. And I was a Calvinist for five years, 1977 to 1982, and, and I embraced these arguments, and especially Romans 9 seems to state things very plainly. But first, Romans 9 is not primarily dealing with salvation issues, but rather called to service, if you'll, if you'll read it through. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is, Paul is challenging an attitude. Right? Paul is challenging an attitude by saying, what if? What if this was God's plan? And what if this is how he did things? And who are you to argue against God? In which case, we all shut our mouths and we all fall down on our faces and say, let God be God. But if you keep reading until the end of Romans 11, Paul's conclusion is God has shut up all men in unbelief that he may have mercy on them all. And mm -hmm. someone might say all just means Jews and Gentiles. Yeah, that's the whole world. Who is there outside of Jews and Gentiles? And in 1 John 2, where John says that Jesus is not just the propitiations for our sins, but for that of the whole world. So I understand election in terms of God chose before the foundation of the world that he would have a people in his son, and he is working throughout the world to bring that to pass. And, and to be part of that elect group, you must respond to his offer of grace. So salvation is all by grace. We can never pat ourselves on the back. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. It's God's goodness, mercy, grace from beginning to end. We understand that. And yet, John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the children of God. And Paul makes plain in Romans that faith is not a work. So the word of God comes. Uh, faith comes by hearing, Romans 10. Faith comes alive as we hear the word now. Will we receive God's grace or reject it? If we reject it, we will not be part of that elect company. The election is in his son, and we are then chosen in him. That's how I understand the chosenness and election, and therefore it all works out in terms of those verses. There's no contradiction between them. So let me ask another related question. Daniel Haining wrote in, and uh, he said, now this is a question about you specifically, but he's, he's charging that you teach a faith plus works false gospel that you don't believe once saved, always stay saved. How do you respond to him? I, I teach the biblical gospel as best as I can. And, and what's interesting is that is once saved, always saved, is, is something that, that large parts of the body don't believe and have never believed. Salvation is all by grace through faith, but God does not force you to stay in his house. I just have to ask uh, Daniel, what about all the verses that warn us against falling away? Do we throw those out? Are they unreal? Are in Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12, are all those verses about the danger of falling away not real when First Peter 2 warns against it, when Jesus says, if you deny me, I'll deny you? So salvation by works would be, I have to add my good works 
to God's grace. I have to try harder. I have to pray more. I have to be super holy. And if I don't work hard enough, I don't get in. That's salvation by works. Salvation by grace is God freely forgives us. He empowers us to, to live a godly life. And if we refuse his grace and choose to walk away, we have forfeited it. That's not salvation by works. And, and what we do know is that God calls us to holiness. And the idea that some have, I'm not accusing Daniel of this, but that some have in the, the once saved, always saved camp is that once you pray a prayer and say, Lord, forgive me, no matter what you do, no matter how you live, you get in. That, that's not the gospel. The proof, as James Edmund used to say, that only proof of the new birth is the new life. And Jesus says in Matthew seven twenty one, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. So God gives us the grace to do it, empowers us to do it, calls us to do it. Uh, on my worst day as a believer, I'm still saved. If I, if I did something stupid and died that moment, that sin doesn't damn me. We're not saved by our, our good works and good efforts. But if I refuse God's grace, if I deny him, if I walk away, if I say I choose sin and I no longer want you, he doesn't force me to stay in the house. That's not salvation by works. That's me rejecting the grace of God. I live by grace in the love of God 24-7 and never, ever, ever, ever worry about losing my salvation because he's promised to keep me, and I love him. But should some insanity of spirit happen to me and I decide I'm just going to walk away, those warnings are going to warn me very clearly. Well, and this is the classic debate between Calvinism, which you referenced, and Arminianism. A Calvinist would say that you can never fall away, but if someone does fall away, then they'll say, well, that person was never a believer to begin with, whereas the Arminian would say, no, this person walked away, there's a sin of apostasy. Um, it's a difficult question, and I think sometimes theologians like to wrap it up with a really <laughs> neat bow and a, you know, a nice clean box, and I'm not sure it does, but I do believe, wasn't it Martin Luther that said that we're saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone? So Yeah, and, and here's the other thing. Calvinism is not once saved, always saved. As you exactly stated, that Calvinism is perseverance of the saints. Hmm. That someone that's truly saved will not ultimately fall away. If they backslide, they'll return. If they do fall away, they were never truly saved. I'm not a Calvinist, but I don't find that dangerous. I just believe it can rob someone of their assurance here and now, because you think, well, I don't really know if I'm in until I get to the end. But to me, I don't even debate the doctrine. I, what I say is this. Do you want the Lord? Do you, do you want Him to be your Savior? Well, He's going to keep you. Don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. If you think, I can do whatever I want. I can leave my wife, commit adultery, do this, do that, get drunk, get high, and just live however I want, and, and experiment with different religions that I'm still in. No, no, be warned. That's be warned. not the gospel of Jesus Christ, absolutely. Well, again, that's Dr. Michael Brown. I'm to the Roy's Report, and we will be right back after a short break. Thank you for listening to The Roy's Report with Julie Roy's. The Roy's Report is a listener-supported program, and we're only able to broadcast this program with donations from listeners like you. If you'd like to see this quality program continue, please go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com, and click on the Donate button. And as a thank you for your gift of any size, we'll send you the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, by the late famed apologist Norm Geisler. Just go to julieroys.com and click on the donate button. This is the Royce Report with Julie Royce. Well, how do you answer challenges to the Christian faith? 
Welcome back to the Roy's Report. I'm Julie Roy's, and today we're tackling some of the toughest questions concerning Christianity from listeners like you. And joining me to do that is a leading apologist, author, and founder of the Fire School of Ministry, Dr. Michael Brown. And if you want to connect directly with him, just go to askaskdrbrown.org. And also want to underscore that we're giving away five copies of the revised edition of Dr. Brown's book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood. And to get that, you just go to julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com slash giveaway. Again, julieroys.com slash giveaway. And you can enter the giveaway for that uh, for that book. And also at my website, julieroys.com, we will have audio of this show so you can share it with friends afterwards, or if you missed any portion, you can go back and listening and listen to it. But Dr. Brown, what I'd like to do now is uh, we do have a lot of questions, and I think we've been taking you know more time with some of these, but we're going to hit some of these quickly now. So um, let me just fire some away. The first one is by uh, Verna Adams Popo, and she writes, what is the point of praying when God will answer according to his will? What is the point of praying in faith, believing God for the answer, and still he does not answer? First, when we pray, we spend time with God. We become uh, influenced by him. We draw close to him. We fellowship with him. We lean on him. We talk to him. So prayer is communion. But secondly, God's will is that he responds to prayer. Many things don't happen because we don't pray. Many things don't happen because we don't pray in faith. God's not going to do everything he wants to do without us because that's how he set it up. So, for example, at the end of Ezekiel 22, he said he, he was not going to pour out his wrath. If he found one person to intercede, he couldn't find any, and so he poured out his wrath. Uh, James, Jacob, the fourth chapter, says that you, you don't get because you don't ask, and then when you ask, you ask to consume things on your own lust. So when we ask according to the Father's will, we ask in faith. Not only do we commune with him, our faith is built up as we see him answer, and when we don't pray, uh, we don't see answers. One of my friends many years ago said, when I pray, coincidences happen. It's just one of those things. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, okay, this question is by uh, Kevin Hunter, who says, did Jesus know when he was young who he was, or did he at some point have it revealed to him? I, I know what I think, but I'd like to hear it from a scholar. What do you think? Right, well, we know when he's 12 years old that he's conscious of God being his father in a unique way. That's, that's clear. But I, I don't believe that when he was a baby, when he was an infant, that he knew every language on the planet, that, that he could tell you Einstein's theory of relativity, uh, that, he had, uh, that he knew every verse of the Bible before it was written. I believe he developed as a human being. I mean, Luke tells us about him growing in wisdom and stature. So my understanding is at some point in his development, as he's meditating on scriptures and communing with God, he begins to get a revelation of who he is. So I don't think it just happens one moment, but a rising of consciousness uh, in study of Scripture, communing with God, he becomes more and more aware of who he is and the fullness of his mission. But as far as I know, we're still speculating on that answer. What's your take, Julie? (laughs) I I tend to go towards the line that he knew from the very beginning, but I guess I've never really thought about that deeply. I've never had that posed to me before. Um, But since he was fully God and fully human... I, I, right, right. But was he fully human? In, in other words, right. was, there, was there any willful setting aside of certain divine prerogatives? Did he fake when he was like, Imma, Abba? Was he faking that? You know, was he... Was he right, he, he, was, he must have been bound by his own um, 
by his own humanity and its cognitive, I mean, development. I mean, we know a, a baby, an infant, can't even think right. in full thoughts. So I would say well, that. But I, I would say I would more tend towards that he was aware of it by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit from the very, from as soon as he could cognitively, you know, be able to, to know that. But maybe right, you know, right. So that so that's something. Does a two-year-old grasp that? Four, ten? That's what I'm saying. To me, it's something that grows. The other thing is, we know he gets hungry, tired, grieved. In other words, he has physical limitations. He has human emotions. So anyway, it's it's an extraordinary question. It's a wonderful question, yeah. and one that's worth holy meditation. Yeah. I, well, here's a related question to that. The idea that Jesus never thought he was divine seems to be coming up a lot lately. Would love to hear what you have to say about that one. Yeah, well, John's Gospel is obviously the clearest place to go. We know in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he talks about, for this reason I came, or being sent. There's that consciousness, and Mm -hmm. no one can know the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There's a certain stature he has. And in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, in the Great Commission, he's included. Uh, in, in the baptismal form, you're with the Father and with the Spirit. I mean, how, how do you get there? Mm. Why do you baptize in the name of a glorified man? But then in John's Gospel, uh, very clearly in John 8, 58, he does say, before Abraham, I am. So not just pre-existent, but I, I, that identifiable, I am, I am he, before Abraham. Uh, we know in John 10, he and the Father are one, but in a unique way, so that in John 14, he says that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, and then we know in John 17, he speaks of the glory that he enjoyed with his father before the world began. And then in John 20, when Thomas falls at his feet and says, my Lord, my God, he doesn't say, don't say that. It's like, now you finally get it. Right. Uh, so if you've seen him, you've seen the father. That's out of the Lord's own mouth. Yeah, I don't know how people could say he wasn't aware he was divine. To me, it's pretty clear throughout the scriptures that he, that he does. So um, here's another one. Zacharias Rivera asks, Many ask how we could base what we believe in solely on what the Bible says, but can we really trust the Bible? Yes, we can really trust the Bible on several levels. One is when it lays out for us the history of the people of Israel, scattered among the nations and then regathered back to the land in unbelief, somehow miraculously preserved, even though disciplined. This has never happened. No people has been out of a homeland as a nation for century after century, in country after country, and then somehow maintains an identity and then returns to the ancient homeland. This has never happened, and yet God sketches it out. The fact that Jerusalem will be the center of world controversy. How did God know that if it's not God? How did the prophets know that? You know, you have, you have those things. The ongoing relevance of Scripture in every generation, in every culture, is miraculous and unprecedented. But to me, the biggest proof is not just the prophecies, the messianic prophecies, things like that, which are striking and amazing and clearly point to the divinity of, of the book, but God has spoken certain things to us about who he is and given us promises. And when we really cry out and when we really seek him and when we really lean on him, he does the things that he promised. It's not you just snap a finger and we don't get all the miracles we want to get and people suffer, we don't have answers for everything, but... Ultimately, the God of the Bible saved me, changed me, transformed me, and has been with me in amazing and extraordinary ways now for almost 48 years. So I I trust the Bible because I've come to know the God of the Bible, and then in studying the Scripture, now intellectually as well, I can trust what's written. Hmm. 
Hank Cruz asks, why does a loving and all-powerful God allow evil to exist? Why if not just wipe God it all is, out? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, if he wiped it all out, he'd wipe all of us out as well. <laughs> exactly. And, and if, it, should he have wiped me out when I was a heroin-shooting LSD using rebels stealing money from my father? I was evil then. The fact is, if he's going to create beings that can love him freely, he has to give us free choices. And with free choices, we can choose to obey or disobey. When we choose to disobey, evil is then actualized. So uh, God will ultimately judge and deal with it. But right now, it's for the best of the human race that he doesn't wipe out evil, because if he wiped it out, none of us would be left. That would be the end of the human race. He's patiently working to bring people to himself. Love can't be coerced. Love must be freely chosen. Therefore, we're going to choose good or evil. But God is working in the midst of evil to perfect us, to strengthen us, to, to try us and test us so that we can grow and become something that we never could have become if not for passing through this difficult, fallen world. Hmm. I remember once, uh, my husband and I used to do a lot of youth ministry, and we used to hang out at Denny's, and this is back when um, people were allowed to smoke at Denny's all the time, and these high school students would show up, and they'd be smoking away, and I remember just asking the Lord to you know, preserve my lungs somehow through that. <laughs> but I remember one of these students came up very, I mean, just angrily saying that, you know, why did God, and he, he, he referenced the Holocaust, you know, why did God allow that horrible thing? Why doesn't he wipe out all evil right now? And I, I said to him the same thing that you just said, uh, you know, so you'd like him to wipe out all evil right now, you know, immediately. And he said, absolutely. And then I asked him, are you without sin? And I said, so... And he said no. And I said, so he'd have to wipe out you. And I don't think he'd ever thought about that. And I think, again, it's, you know, it's back to that other question, you know, about the innocent person. We just lose a sense of our own sinfulness. And I think especially in this day and age, it's something that we've just moved away from. We, we really don't recognize our sinfulness. We, we judge our holiness based on sort of like God grades on a curve, like where everybody else is. And we just miss it. We miss God's holiness. And I, I think it's really... Uh, devastating to our entire worldview. So, and you know, the other question is: Okay, let's say it's only the really bad people. You know, where do you, where yeah. does one draw the line? And then when they're all gone, are you saying the other people aren't going to commit evil acts? You know, that's that's the tragic and shocking and unbelievable thing: the most monstrous acts we ever hear of, the horrific mass murdering of the Holocaust. Mm. the torturing of a little child and burying them alive, whatever these, these things that take place today, and unimaginable. Those are fellow human beings. Mm. And, and then when we search our own hearts, no, we're not thinking of things like that, but, but how wrong have our attitudes been or how proud have we been or how judgmental or lustful or greedy or selfish. And, you know, those are evil things in God's sight. What about gossip? Here, if God was going to wipe out evil on the world, let him, let him just look at so, Christian social media for a month, and, and the whole, we'd all be gone. <laughs> the cruelty, the, the, the mm. ugliness, the bigotry, the gossip, the sl- it's just, that's who we are. So I'm very thankful for God's patience. I'm very thankful for his mercy. Mm. Well, here's one, um, not specifically about the faith or the gospel, but, but I think one that's worthy of an answer, and it, we only have about a minute or so left, but... Um, someone, Brandon asks, uh, he wants to know as someone who works across denominational lines, what you believe is the greatest problem or challenge in the American church today and what you recommend be done about it. 
Well, the overall, to me, the overall greatest problem in the Church is lack of consciousness of God. Mm. We are very secular, earthly, worldly in our thinking. We know how to do it, make it happen. If we were much more God-conscious, we'd walk, walk more, more in the fear of the Lord, and, and with that, there'd be a greater unity. But as far as denominational lines and things like that, there's often a lack of honor and respect for others. I'm talking about within the mm. body. Mm. There, there's often a lack of recognition that you have something I need and I have something you need. So rather than being so prideful that we think we have it all, let's recognize we need each other. And, and in a day and age like today, when the faith is under such assault from so much of the uh, society, we really do need each other. And if, if we can still have our differences, still have our distinctives, but humble ourselves and say, hey, what can I learn from you? How can I help you? Then I think we will we'll do much better to come together, major on the majors, and let us have our own little distinctives where they fit. Oh, amen. I so agree with that. Well, uh, just to wrap up, in Luke, the gospel writer says, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. You know, I truly believe that God can handle our questions, and he wants to answer these tough questions so that our faith isn't a giant leap, but maybe more, as my grandpa used to say, it's more like a small step based on prior experience and evidence. Uh, Just want to encourage you, keep seeking answers if you don't have them. Again, my thanks to Dr. Brown for joining me today. And just as a reminder, if you missed any part of the show, you can get it at julieroys, spelled R-O-Y-S, dot com. Hope you have a great weekend, and God bless.